Chapter Four of Carpenter's World Travels, Alaska, Our Northern Wonderland, by Frank Carpenter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Betty B. Chapter Four: Alaska's Golden Fisheries. During the last two weeks, I have visited several fishing centers of southeastern Alaska, and have gone through many of the canneries where they are putting up salmon for shipment to all parts of the world. There are more than 75 such canneries in southeastern Alaska alone, and nearly twice that number in the whole territory. I have also gone through the cold storage plants at Ketchikan and elsewhere, where they are freezing salmon for export, and have seen the various processes of mild curing and smoking and pickling the fish for the market. But few people appreciate what Uncle Sam is now getting out of the waters of this territory. The fishing industry is the most important business in Alaska. So far, the seas have proved almost as valuable as the land. Including the operations of the seal fisheries, we have realized more than half a billion dollars from them. We are now getting almost six times as much annually from Alaskan fish as the sum we paid for the whole territory when we bought it from the Russians, and we have received more than 70 times that amount since the purchase was made. If the industry is properly protected and fostered, it should produce at that rate for all time to come. Indeed, the waters of Alaska have to be reckoned among the big sources of our food supply. They produce hundreds of millions of pounds of food every year, and the canned salmon alone is enough to give 10 meals to every family in the United States and still leave some for export. The fresh salmon sold in a year runs upward of three million pounds, while the salmon frozen, mild cured, and pickled comes to 15 million pounds. The annual halibut export amounts to about seven million pounds and the codfish to 10 million. In addition to this, there are many other kinds of fish in these waters that will eventually be caught and shipped, so that in some respects, the industry is at its beginning. In the water divisions, which the United States Bureau of Fisheries has made of the territory, southeastern Alaska is known as fishing district number one. It is by far the most important of the water regions of our territory, having something like 10,000 men engaged in fishing. This district has great halibut banks off its many islands and is the seat of the fresh fish industry of Alaska. The fishing investments there amount to something like $30 million, most of which is in salmon. The second fishing district is known as that of Central Alaska. This begins at Yakutat Bay and includes the Great Gulf of Alaska and all of the waters south of the mainland and along the Aleutian Islands, which run almost to Asia. The ocean bed of a great part of this enormous district is paved with fish. The bulk of the catch is salmon, but there is also an annual export of cod, amounting to millions of pounds, from the extensive cod banks south of the Alaska Peninsula and the Aleutian Islands. These banks compare with those of Newfoundland. Some of them are 120 miles long and of great width. They are so situated that the Arctic and the Japanese currents bring them a great deal of fish food, and the cod come there by the millions to eat. The third district, western Alaska, includes banks swarming with cod. It embraces Bristol Bay, where the salmon run into the streams by the tens of millions a year. The deltas of the Kuskokwim and the Yukon rivers 
as well as the coast of Norton Sound and all the waters along Seward Peninsula to Cape Prince of Wales at Bering Strait. We have also an island in the middle of the strait about which some fishing is done. As far as its fisheries are concerned, western Alaska is next in importance to southeastern Alaska. There is a fairly well-authenticated story of how one of the salmon kings started his fortune in the fish industry on the basis of the then despised light-colored salmon. This man had put up his cannery at a location past which the fish came in great numbers on their way in to spawn. He was right in his selection of a site, and the salmon were caught in vast quantities. They were all, however, of the light pink variety, and the fisherman was in despair. At that time, no light-colored salmon had been shipped, and the demand everywhere was for salmon of an almost red hue. The man canned his catch and sold it by means of a label which implied that it was the only sanitary fish on the market. The label read, this salmon is warranted not to turn red in the can. Most of the catch went to the southern states, and the drummers selling it did their business so well that in some of the towns in that part of the United States, to this day, you can hardly sell a red salmon. The people think it is spoiled and has therefore turned red in the can. In interior Alaska, both whites and natives are indirectly dependent on dried salmon for their very existence during the winter. One of the most important phases of the salmon industry is the fact that dried salmon is the best food for the husky or Alaskan team dog. Of the $70 million invested in the fishing industry of Alaska, 62 millions are devoted to catching, canning, and shipping of salmon. There are four species of this fish, all of which are delicious. The largest and most valuable is the king salmon, which has an average weight of 22 pounds and sometimes weighs as much as 100 pounds. This is found in southeastern Alaska in all months of the year, and in May and June it runs up many of the rivers to spawn. The next in size is the sockeye, or red salmon, which is about a yard long and has an average weight of 5 pounds. It is found all over Alaska and runs chiefly from June until the middle of August. The silver or coho salmon is not so valuable on account of the paleness of its flesh. It weighs on an average about six pounds and runs later than the sockeye. The humpback is the smallest of our salmon. It is caught by the millions in southeastern Alaska, and many of the canneries depend upon it. It weighs up to 11 pounds. In addition to these four species, Alaska has the dog salmon, which is good for freezing, salting, and smoking, but poor for canning, and is shipped largely to Japan. Catching the salmon and bringing them to the canneries is a great industry by itself. There are certain weeks or months of the year during which these fish come from the ocean into the fresh waters of the rivers to spawn. The spawning grounds are often a thousand miles or more inland. I have seen the fish fighting their way up the Yukon 2,000 miles from its mouth at Bering Sea and they may be found in great numbers climbing over the rocks of the streams that flow down the mountains of the coast into the Pacific. When they are four or five years old, the instinct to spawn sends the salmon up into the inland creeks and rivers. There seems to be something in the contact with the fresh water coming down into the ocean that causes the fish to run toward it. Usually they pair off. When they have gone far enough from salt water, the male, with his tail and snout, digs a broad, shallow nest in the gravelly stream bed, 
in which the female deposits her eggs. After they have been fertilized by the milt of the male, the pair cover them up with sand and gravel, then float down the stream tail first, never swimming or making any effort to get back to sea. In a few days, both the male and female die. Four or five months later, the young hatch and soon, guided by some instinct, make their way down to the ocean where they stay until they are ready to rush back to fresh water, spawn and die like their parents before them. In the spawning season, the salmon come upstream in such hordes that they can be caught in traps, both stationary and floating, in nets fastened to posts and stakes in the rivers, and in sends which are brought from the beaches and the boats. They are caught also by fish wheels moved by the currents of the river in such a way that the nets of wire or cord attached to the wheels scoop up the fish as they swim against the current and fairly shovel them down into the boats. Fish wheels of this kind are to be seen here and there along the coast, and there are hundreds of them owned by the Indians along the Kuskokwim and Yukon rivers. The business of the Alaskan canneries is enormous. The one I went through in Ketchikan covers several acres. It will put up seven and one-half million cans of salmon this year, besides freezing hundreds of thousands of pounds to be sent to the east. When the fish are brought in by the boatloads and dumped out by the thousand, they are still alive and flopping, and they are hardly dead as they start into the iron chink, a machine which cleans each fish, cutting off its head, tail, and fins, and taking out its insides within the time of a watch tick. This work used to be done by hand, and Chinese hands at that. When the machine was invented to take the place of the Chinaman, it was nicknamed the Iron Chink, and so it is known to this day. The inventor was a cook of Seattle named Smith, who made a fortune out of his invention. His machine will clean 30,000 fish in 10 hours, or as much as was formerly done by 50 of the most expert Chinese. Nevertheless, the whole thing is not much bigger around than a flour barrel, and not more than eight feet in height. It consists of a number of knives so arranged that as the fish flies in, one knife cuts off the head and at the same time another chops off the tail. As the fish moves on, a third knife rips up the belly and other knives take off the fins. At the end, the fish has been split, the backbone taken out, the blood removed, and the salmon is ready for the can. Before being put into the can, however, it is carefully inspected by men who watch the fish as they make their way over endless belts to the chopper. The chopper automatically cuts the fish into pieces of the right size for the can, in such a way that each can gets its own share of the several parts of a fish. There must be some from the back and some from the belly in order to supply the streak of lean and the streak of fat, which, as in bacon, are necessary to make the can of salmon just right. The machine puts into each can just 16 ounces. As the cans move onward, they pass through an automatic weighing machine, which drops out any that are underweight. After this, the cover of the can is fitted on by machinery in such a way as to allow the steam to escape, and the tins travel on in a furnace or exhaust box, where the temperature is 212 degrees. Next, another machine makes the tops tight, without acid or solder and the cans are moved on into great retorts where they are cooked for an hour and a half in a heat of 254 degrees. When they come out, they are ready to be labeled 
and packed into boxes for shipment to all parts of the world. The halibut is one of the most interesting fish that swims the seas. It is the largest of the flat fish. I have seen many which, if stood upon their tails, would reach high above my head, and some which I venture are over three feet in width. The average halibut weighs about 100 pounds, but some have been caught weighing as much as 300. Halibut fishing has nothing gamey or sporting about it. Long lines are dropped into the sea until the baited hook rests on the bed of the ocean. Sometimes the lines are so long that when loaded with fish, it takes the steam engine on the fishing vessel the better part of a day to wind them up. They are divided into sections, each section having a float or buoy that rides on the surface and is marked by a flag in the daytime and by a light at night. Some halibut fishing is now carried on direct from the ship. A few years ago it was all done in dories or small boats which were taken out in large vessels. The men would go out in the dories to set the lines and later bring the halibut back to the vessel. The fishing parties usually stay out from 10 days to 3 weeks. They carry ice with them and the moment the fish are taken from the hook they are cleaned and packed in the ice. When they reach the cold storage plant they are washed and shipped in cold storage cars direct to the markets. If they are not to be shipped immediately, halibut are put into freezers where they remain for 24 hours at a temperature of 10 to 20 degrees above zero. Next, each one is dipped four or five times in fresh water until it becomes entirely encased in a thin sheet of clear ice. It can then be held in cold storage at a temperature of four degrees below freezing. Finally, the fish get another coating of ice, are wrapped separately in vegetable parchment paper, packed in paper-lined boxes of 75 pounds capacity, and sent eastward in the cold storage trains. I have gone through some of the big freezing establishments, both in Prince Rupert and in Ketchikan. Each town has its cold storage plants where halibut and salmon are frozen. The largest one I visited has a capacity of 14 million pounds of fish. Its buildings are right on the harbor, and the fish are frozen stiff as soon as they come from the wharves. I went into the freezing chambers, the walls and pipes of which were covered with frost. The temperature is far below zero. The smell of the ammonia used to produce refrigeration almost overcame me as I walked between the great masses of fish laid one upon another like so many sticks of cordwood. I took up one of the smaller fish and let it drop on the floor. It was as hard as stone, and the noise of its fall was like the crack of a pistol. I examined the fish, but there was no bruise or dent in the flesh. I stood it on end, resting the tail on the floor, and it did not bend in the least. A great deal of halibut is salted and put in hogsheads for shipment. Each hogshead holds about 850 pounds, and when full is worth around $100. The halibut intended for salting is dressed before it is packed. It is hung by the gills to a hook, then sliced in two, the back and the front forming great slabs of snow-white meat. The backbone is cut out, the front or belly has no bones. After cleaning, the slabs are sprinkled with salt and put into the hogsheads in layers, with a layer of salt between each two layers of fish. Some halibut is smoked, in which form it may be bought in almost any grocery store. Herring, the halibut's favorite food, are found in nearly all the waters of Alaska. They move about in great schools, some of which cover several square miles. 
Twice a year, when they swim to the shores to spawn, they come in such large schools that they can be scooped up from the water right into the boats. One way of catching them is by driving nails into a board so that they stick out several inches. The boards are then dragged through the schools and the fish catch between the nails and are pulled by the boardful into the boats. In one year, more than a million pounds of herring were caught at Prince Rupert alone and frozen by the cold storage plants to be sold for bait. A large proportion of the herring catch of Alaska is used for manufacture of fertilizer and oil, but at that, statistics show an output of more than 8 million pounds annually cured for food. There are also large cod fisheries in Alaska, and the cod are said to be equal to those caught on the banks of Newfoundland. Much of the cod fishing is about the Aleutian Islands, and there are many vessels and stations devoted to the industry. The amount of cod caught annually runs to more than 12 million pounds. In addition to the ordinary cod, there are black cod, a fish of about the same size as the ordinary cod, but darker in color. The flesh, which is much richer in oil, may be prepared in such a way that it is delicious. It has been eaten for many years in Alaska and has latterly been shipped to Seattle, where the restaurants make a special feature of barbecued black cod. This consists of the backs of the fish, which are kippered or smoked after being salted, served with drawn butter. There is a prospect that an extensive industry will sometime arise in the shellfish of Alaska. There are oysters on the southern coast as large as saucers, and there are many places among the Alaskan islands where you can catch crabs as big as dinner plates. There are clams, large and small, delicious little butter clams, and others good to eat the size of a man's hand. I am told, however, that one has to be very careful as to the source of his clam supply. Some of these bivalves feed in the water near the copper deposits, and the copper poisons their meat. The captain of one of our coast survey steamers, in speaking of this recently, told me how his life was saved by a pussycat. Said he, it was a narrow escape. I had bought a fine mess of clams and was just about to eat some of them raw when I decided I had better test their edibility by giving one of them to my cat. The pussy ate it, and a moment later she rolled over and went into convulsions. She kept on kicking until every one of her nine lives had departed. End of chapter 4